This is Crossroads, a Get Religion podcast. I am humbled and honored and aware that this call is bigger than me. And my hope is that your grandkids will call you and your kids will call you and your friends will call you and ask you about your faith. And when they call, tell them how much you love Jesus and why Jesus's faith in you meant you could have faith in me. Thank you so much. That's Megan Rohr speaking after being elected bishop of the Sierra Pacific Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. She made headlines with that. The New York Times and Religion News Service both saying first transgendered bishop in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Now, why is that news, given the fact that the ELCA is just being the ELCA? And I'm confused as a news reader. Is this a woman who thinks she's a man or a man who thinks he's a woman? The pronouns in the news stories don't help me one bit. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry Mattingly is senior fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be here. So why is it news that the ELCA is doing what the ELCA does when the ELCA elects someone to be bishop, and this is completely consistent and representative of their theology. This looks to me like a dog bites man story. <laughs> well, in in a way it is, but but clearly that's news or it wouldn't be in the New York Times. It wouldn't be a major story at Religion News Service and this particular person's entire adult life wouldn't be made up of one media appearance after the other that keeps pushing this person more and more and more and more into the spotlight. So someone thinks this is a story and someone thinks this is real interesting. I personally think it is a story, but it's a story in that it's a chance to actually look at the content of a kind of gender neutral, honestly liberal, mainline Protestant denomination. If this is what the mainline Protestants want to become, and if this is what it looks like to live out their doctrines, then why not do a story that openly states the doctrines and then states the implications of the doctrines? Let me give you an example of where I'm coming from on this. Back in the 1980s, Billy Graham was coming to Denver, and I got a tip halfway through the, the week of services that he was going to speak do his first ever sermon addressing the topic of AIDS. Well, this course, I was going to be in a very difficult situation in the sense that the sermon was going to be at approximately 8 o'clock at night. It was going to end around 8.45 
and then I was going to be on a deadline for all editions of the Rocky Mountain News in Denver. My story was going to be due no later than 9.30 to be able to get a press run at around 10 or 10.30. So I had to line up some interviews in advance, and I ended up talking to the pastor of the Metropolitan Community Church, which was the kind of the first openly multi-gender pro-gay denomination in American life. And for the most part, I mean, this man was a former United Methodist pastor, although interestingly enough, and this turned into the focus of my story, his associate pastor was a, a gay male who had grown up Southern Baptist and had walked the aisle at a Billy Graham crusade as a child, and then had been a Southern Baptist pastor until he came out as gay and then left and was now an HIV-positive gay male serving in a predominantly gay denomination. Now, the reason I bring that up was in the midst of the interview, in which they were very cooperative and very informed and ended up being great sources for the story, what I thought was fascinating is we ended up talking about some of the tensions in this man's congregation. And he said, for example, that there were very strong tensions in his congregation between the people who had come out of liberal mainline Protestantism and the people who had come out of the Southern Baptist Convention and the Assemblies of God and other denomination and charismatic. Because, as he put it, some of those people, many people in his church still believe in hell and still believe in sin and still believe in the need to accept Christ as Savior. And then you have other people coming from a liberal mainland Protestant background at this point who are not sure about the divinity of Christ they aren't sure about the resurrection. They certainly don't believe in hell. And in other words, there were underneath the umbrella of this gender-free congregation, there were theological tensions that still remained, even though they were being very honest about what they believed. So I bring that up in this context, and that I think it's very interesting when this woman says, you know, I hope members of your family call, and I hope you tell them about why you love Jesus and how your love of Jesus helps you love me. I think it would be interesting to know more about this person's theology and more about this person's history. Now, I, I read up, I went ahead and followed the links in some of the stories, and basically the history here is Megan, and she's kept the name Megan, came out as lesbian, apparently at a Lutheran school or in high school. She said the Dakotas was not an interesting place to figure out that you're trans. As Megan, I'm not going to use pronouns here as much as I can, as she put it at that point, although I let she put in, because I get at that, that point she was she. Well, what's interesting about this is eventually she declares herself not to be lesbian, but trans, and in an interview with Cosmopolitan, she's quite open about how this led to surgery and how this led to her to change her life and her body and her feelings about her body or their body or whatever. Yet at the same time, it doesn't anywhere state that she in any way identifies with being a male, thus the plural pronouns. Well, this is all extremely interesting from a doctrine of man perspective, a Christian anthropology perspective. And you have a chance here 
to actually talk about what that looks like theologically when you stand in a pulpit or whatever. Before I shut up, this is a long rambling answer here, but I think you can see what I'm getting at. I've been looking all afternoon to see if I could find a copy of whatever liturgy is used when a person becomes a bishop in the ELCA. I mean, surely there are prayers, usually there are vows, and most of the time the vows consist of a promise to defend the doctrines and the faith of the church denomination that's ordaining the person. And what I think would be interesting is this, I'd love to know what's in the vows this time, because this person could honestly say that he, she, or they is defending the doctrines of the ELCA and intends to do so with great enthusiasm. Does that make any sense? I mean, to me, that's an interesting story. Well, I completely agree with you that I think that is the probably the angle here, which is you have, this is a kind of a true believer in the ELCA yeah. sense, and a doctrinally true believer, because the doctrines, although I regard them to be false, are still doctrines in that church, and they exactly. are they are a kind of, it's orthodoxy. So, you know, it doesn't surprise me one bit. Can you explain to me, as a newsman, if you would, what position are you put in when you are trying to abide by, say, the AP style manual for writing these stories, and the readers, like I did, end up entirely confused until you gave me the backstory. I did not know whether, because the pictures are somewhat ambiguous, I didn't know whether I was dealing with a man who believes he's a woman or a woman who believes he's a man, and of course the pronouns don't help at all, and the female name only adds to the confusion. What do you do when you're a newsman? You're bound by AP, the style that you have to write in by your editors, and you have to tell this story without all the backstory there. And is it even a point? Do you care whether the reader knows who well, this I person think, actually is? I think the religion news service team, or at least some of them, and I think the New York Times team would say that in this case, that's essentially irrelevant. But this raises a point that I've been making at Get Religion ever since we started the website, which is that I think the religious left is interesting as a religion story, not a politics story, and in some cases like this, not just the story of individual people. Because eventually the ELCA is an actual denomination with doctrines and policies and seminary, and I'm actually interested in what they believe and teach. Now, I'm not saying that at some point you need to stop this person and read a long list of theological questions. I mean, you're probably familiar with the fact that at Get Religion, we have what some people a long time ago called the TMAT Trio. And the TMAT Trio is a series of three questions that I developed while I was a secular mainstream reporter. And I was covering a lot of stories in Denver, in the context of Denver, about battles within liberal mainland Protestantism. And in the midst of that, I developed a series of questions, which later I got a very interesting call from George Gallup Jr., who was um, intrigued with my questions and the wording. And the three questions are, the first one is, did the resurrection 
actually happen? Was it an event in real time? And that's a that's an interesting question. And there are mainline Protestants who still believe in the resurrection. And then there are mainline Protestants who don't. But it's it's interesting to ask, and certainly to a lot of readers would stop and say, as they did when I wrote a story in an Episcopal context, they would say, wait, hold a minute. We have an Episcopal bishop, in this case it was Jack Spong of Newark, who has taken the vows to defend the faith handed down through the ages, of, represented by the Episcopal Church. He's taken vows to defend the faith, but he doesn't believe in the resurrection. How does that compute? Or doesn't believe, he's very, let's put it this way, he's very unclear on the resurrection. I, and I ask him the question, and he kind of declined to answer. The second question is, is salvation found through Christ alone? Now that's the question that was dividing this gay congregation, predominantly gay congregation in Denver when I wrote about back in the 80s. They still had people who believed that salvation was through Jesus, but they had many other people in the pews who had moved on to kind of Unitarian Universalism with mainland Protestant vestments and rituals. And then the third question is, is sex outside of marriage a sin? And Gallup was intrigued that I didn't define that in terms of gay or lesbian or straight or anything. I just asked the question, is sex outside of marriage a sin? Now, I bring that up in this context because I think it would be interesting to know how Bishop-elect Megan Rohr states the faith of the ELCA on very basic Christian questions. Now, I don't think the Times or RNS is going to stop and do a detailed story on that, but it might be worth a paragraph to simply describe why Megan is calling people to the ELCA and what she means when she says, tell them about your faith in Jesus, and whether that relates to salvation, heaven, hell, sin, repentance, or whatever. But most of all, to get to your question directly, in this case, yes, I definitely think there needed to be one paragraph that very briefly follows up on her statement about it wasn't easy growing up trans in the Dakotas, because when you read her actual story as it unfolds, she was wrestling with being trans, but she came out as lesbian. And she was a lesbian woman who then decided that he, she, or they was trans, or I believe now, I think she would use the term just simply queer. At one point, I thought I saw a quote from her that said, the more Christian she became, or the more queerer she became, the more Christian she became, or the more faithful she became. Well, see, I'm saying that this person's actual faith, the contents of her faith, is interesting. Not just her story and not just her politics, and not just the fact that she's become a minor TV star on Queer Eye and other types of shows where she she plays a, a trendy role of being the the trans or queer liberal mainland Protestant leader. What if we actually had her, she, they talking about this person's own faith? I, I think that's worth inclusion in a religion story.
Terry, before the break, you had said that you thought maybe the editors at the New York Times and, and RNS considered the backstory more or less irrelevant. And to me, that's a hard case to make. And it's just a non-journalist because the headline is transgender. Take transgender out of the headline and it and it does not merit any coverage by the New York Times and would not merit any coverage by the New York Times. But that scenario projected by transgender itself tells a story. They were born one way and now they're another way. And the reader should know at least the basics of that backstory. Well, I think in this case, part of what's bothering you so much, and it bothered me as I first began reading into this story, is the fact that we probably don't know many males named Megan. And the fact that the name for this person stayed the same adds to the confusion. I'm not saying they needed to do a whole story about the details of the changes in her life, but I think it would have been interesting because, frankly, it's a very big story right now in LGBTQ life, the tensions between trans and the lesbian community, with the lesbian community affirming that there are multiple ways to to view yourself as a woman, and here we have someone who has lived that and to some degree has acted that out surgically and in her own life and identity, yet at the same time hasn't changed to male pronouns, as I think most female to male trans people do. She's gone to multiple pronouns and also gone with the plural pronouns, they. I mean, so, yeah, I think that's worth a paragraph. If you were doing a long feature story, you certainly would want to be very clear about this person's understanding of the changes in their life you know, as they moved through it. I once again am, am really intrigued with what this says about Megan Rower's ministry and how that has actually gone down. I mean, for example, the, she is the, um, he, she or he, they, is the head of, of a liaison group of volunteer chaplains with the police department of San Francisco. And I assume that would be very interesting in the last year or two. I'd appreciate knowing more about how that works and who considers this person to be their pastor and who doesn't. Frankly, I'm also interested in knowing, is there anyone left in the ELCA who is disturbed about this? What is the current status of the ELCA? And was this a, a trendy issue? It was a, I mean, it went through several ballots, the election there in the Senate. I believe it's the Sierra Pacific Senate of the ELCA. The election went through several ballots. That, to me, seems that there, there probably were other candidates and what, what constituency groups within the denomination did the other candidates represent? So I, I guess I'm just more interested in religion, the religion elements of this story than I'm supposed to be. So I think that Elizabeth Eaton, the presiding bishop of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, was quoted in one of the stories, and she essentially said, you know, when we say welcoming, we mean welcoming. And she made it sound like, theologically, this is not only the vector for the ELCA, this is who they are. This is quintessential of who they are. Well, yes, and I, and I think that appears to be true. 
I guess what I just asked is whether that is now true with no dissent or no tensions of the ELCA as a whole. I could imagine that's very true of the ELCA in San Francisco. Yet this wasn't a first ballot victory, and there were other candidates. So, you know, if I was covering a story about an issue that I'm saying is news because it's trendy and edgy and thus sort of maybe controversial, once again, I know this is so old-fashioned of me, but I, I am interested in knowing if there are any people on the doctrinal other side of this story. Which, by the way, brings to an, another question. Do you think we're still at a point where in normal coverage you need to explain the presence of the word evangelical in the title of this denomination? Well, I mean, I think you you probably, at least historically, do. Uh, that raised a question for me here, Terry, and that is, I see U.S. Lutheran Church elects first bishop. That's New York Times. Lutherans elect Megan Rohr's yeah, first. Here we go. All right. Now, I happen to be a Lutheran of an entirely different persuasion, a conservative and confessional Lutheran. And I think good editing and good headlining at least requires that they say yes. ELCA or that they say progressive Lutherans elect Megan yeah. Rohr. But I've, I've heard journalists say that the word evangelical in the name prevents them from using that in that way because that only confuses the readers more, which to me, I mean, maybe we're adding paragraphs to this story. We need at least one paragraph of personal history. We need another paragraph that tells the reader who the evangelical Lutheran Church in America is and who they aren't. I mean, it might be handy to know that they have a ministerial concordant with the Episcopal Church these days. It might be interesting to know a little bit about their membership history. I mean, in the sense they haven't declined to the same degree as some other liberal mainline churches in what sociologists call the Seven Sisters of Liberal Protestantism. This is a church, I believe they've gone from about 4.7 million members in the last 10 to 12 years down to about 3.5, 3.3, and that's membership. The synod that she will actually lead, I was looking at some of their membership totals, and of course we don't have anything for the year of COVID, which might have been a rough year, needless to say, and how do you do statistics in the COVID era? But this, this is a church, the synod has kept pretty much the same number of congregations. They haven't closed a lot of congregations in the last 18 years or so, 20 years, they've gone from 183 to 181. But what's really interesting is when you look at the level of attendance or active participants, let's take that one, confirmed members of about 35,000 in 2012, and now, 2019, they have about 28,000. Then in average attendance, they've gone from about 18,000, 17,000, in 2012 to now they're down to 12 to 13,000. If you divide 181 churches into 12,000 or so, we're dealing with a denomination that clearly is struggling. I mean, if the average membership of a church is somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 70 people, I've seen statistics that it takes approximately 85 to 120 people to pay the salary 
of a mainland Protestant minister. This person, Bishop Megan, Bishop-elect Megan, has some work to do in terms of attracting people to this denomination and specifically to her synod of this denomination. And I would frankly have thought that a liberal brand of Methodism in that part of California would be more popular. And once again, I'm making a case for the relevancy of religious questions about this story. In other words, taking seriously what liberal Protestants profess and how they live it out and the impact that has at the level of pulpits, altars, and pews. With uh, just a minute here, Terry, should my church body, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, in some way respond to this story? I don't think that would be a bad idea. At the very least, you should call up and say, I think the headline is misleading. Uh, I think the way that's framed, and that at the very least, the story needed to include a little bit of material that let people know that there are different kinds of Lutherans in the context of the United States, just as there are soon going to be different kinds of Methodists, even more than we had. There are certainly different kinds of Presbyterians. We live in an age where you have to make a differentiation legally now in America between Episcopalians and Anglicans in a lot of different settings. Uh, religion's getting complicated, but it's still a part of this person's story. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thanks. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.